Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Willem Bowder is the chief economist at Citigroup. He joins us now. Good morning, Willem. Good morning. Great to have you here. Uh, and let's start with the Fed. I must admit, I will be curious when the minutes come out here in a few weeks to see uh, if there's any color uh, of conversations between the Cleveland Fed president and the Chicago Fed president about last night's ball game. But besides that, let me ask you about what you expect from, from this statement uh, today, what you'll be looking for. No, I will be looking for absolutely nothing. Right? <laughs> this, is, this is a meeting that might as well not be held. Right? They're not going to do anything. It will be an opportunity for those the minority that wants to see rates increase now to let off some steam, but there won't be no substantive inside. We won't move uh, with rates until December, assuming that Clinton is the, is the president. If we get uh, another outcome, uh, we may not see any rate increases uh, this cycle. You mentioned they're, they're letting off steam. We have that minority... Uh, Angling for, hoping for, for a rate increase. How loud is 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 that group becoming? We, we've heard from Eric Rosengren, uh, certainly from from John Williams as well. Is it becoming a cohesive group uh, in, in any sense? It's hard to uh, to judge, right? The yeah. people um, hold that position for two reasons. One is uh, that you believe that uh, the output gap is closed sufficiently, and inflationary pressures over the horizon that monetary policy can influence it. Uh, likely to result in excessive inflation. The other one is financial stability argument. It hasn't been terribly popular since Jeremy Stein left uh, the board, but I think you hear it uh, mentioned occasionally by FOMC members. So I think um, uh, so. there may be, I think, a, well, there will be, of course, a growing sense uh, that, uh, that, uh, that this group that wants a rate increase you know, will get it, but, again, not this November and uh, um, at the earliest in uh, December, assuming that, uh, uh, that, that uh, Ms. Clint Mrs. Clinton is the, is the next president. Let me drill into that Steinian argument there a, a little bit. Is, is this a Fed that, that it cares little, does not care that much about uh, the effect here on the markets? Is it uh, ignoring that in the face of, of economic data? How aware is it of, of, of how the markets uh, are reacting? I'm not so much thinking about uh, uh, reacting to markets. Right, where I think the Fed is, uh, of all leading central banks, the most sensitive, I would say excessively sensitive, uh, to what it thinks the market might do in response to its actions. I think uh, central banks should basically uh, you know, ignore uh, uh, market volatility um, and uh, you know, just uh, get the message across uh, and take their actions. But um, what I'm talking about is uh, signs of incipient... Um, no credit froth uh, mm -hmm. in the non-financial corporate uh, debt market uh, and uh, other selected parts of the economy. It's not systemic yet, but it's definitely there. And uh, since the U.S. doesn't have any counter-cyclical macroprudential instruments, uh, all you can do to uh, tackle that 
is interest rates. Uh, unfortunately, the Fed doesn't have counter-cyclical no, loan-to-value ratios, counter-cyclical loan-to-income ratios for mortgages and, and similar uh, macroprudential uh, counter-cyclical instruments. And uh, so the, the Fed is condemned to use rates to find, fight financial froth. And in my view, we're probably in the U.S. at the point uh, in the credit cycle that these concerns should be taken more seriously than they are by the majority of the Federal Reserve Board and the FOMC. In the, in the panoply of data they will be pouring over here uh, at the meeting today is the, the latest read of, of GDP. Square that with your focus, uh, your, your forecast here for growth uh, over the next year. Well, we got a um, you know, big boost from exports. Uh, just as the quarter before, you know, we got uh, a, a negative surprise for consumption. Both these things uh, you know, are uh, likely not to be with us uh, for long. Um, we are still looking at uh, you know, two-plus or two-ish growth uh, next year, slightly above uh, what we achieve, like to achieve this year, again, assuming no uh, presidential election surprises. And um, that growth rate is sufficient to keep closing the output gap. This potential output probably is about 1.5%, and therefore there will be slow, continuing <coughs> Upward pressure mm -hmm. on underlying inflation, uh, justifying uh, gradual increase in rates, a couple of increases uh, next year. Good morning, all. David Gurr and Tom Keane with us, Willem Bowder of Citigroup. And he begins, I guess it could be almost like a three-day jobs day. The news flow, David, is extraordinary. I, can, I, I believe I can say in the umpteen years we've done this, I've never seen a five-day period, six-day period One of like the busiest this. weeks, and the surveillance correction here, the, the whirl is so loud that I said it was a Tuesday. It's, in fact, a Wednesday. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm the same way. I'm like, it's November, really? But I want to rip up the script here. Um, Larry Kudlow, my good friend Larry Kudlow, great, great market analyst and economist, is adamant this morning that Greg Mankiw of Harvard gets it right on trade, and Peter Navarro of UCAL Irvine in support of Mr. Trump gets it wrong on trade. We're going to fix this, Mr. Cudlow, because I know Larry listens every morning, and talk to Willem Bowder about trade. Help me here with the core economics of trade when I have two presidential candidates who are anti-TPP, anti-free, they're aggressively anti-free trade like I've never seen. What does that signal for America and our trade deficit? Right. Uh, first of all, of course, the TPP is but more than trade. There is an investment and a dispute settlement ish, uh, rate of issues. So that get are over on the mic. That Come are on. unpopular. <laughs> on radio. Um, but um, um, uh, it's clear that uh, trade is the foundation of the division of labor and, uh, and therefore of prosperity. And uh, free trade, the freest possible trade, uh, right, will maximize the size of the pie. It doesn't guarantee that the benefits are evenly or fairly distributed. And that is where I think the US and Europe, where you know, uh, the two regions in the world where populism is rampant, uh, has fallen down. The fruits from both technical change and globalization generally, trade in particular, have uh, accrued to very few. And that creates a political problem. Not everywhere, in, even in right. advanced economies, right? <clears throat> Canada, not a problem. Australia, New Zealand. But the US and Europe... Right 
have failed the test. You and I remember David's too young for this twin deficits. Mm -mm. Twin deficits, we're all going to die. Help me here with the worry that we are slaves to China because we have an ugly, bad, evil deficit and their money has to flow in uh, by, by, by economic mathematics, oh, that, simple, uh, simple mathematics. That is uh, no sort of mercantilist nonsense. Uh, the fact that the U.S. is running a current account and trade deficit and China surplus is, reflects uh, you know, the fact that the U.S. Um, invests even, uh, uh, you know, invests very little, saves even less, and China, while invests massively, saves even more. Right? It says nothing about the benefits from trade. And the kind of, uh, you know, strange other things being equal arithmetic that says, you know, let's simply, you know, take the whatever, 3 4% of GDP trade deficit and add it uh, to domestic demand and make everybody happy is uh, such bad economics that, uh, you know, well, you wouldn't even flunk people uh, for giving you that answer <laughs> in economics. You would simply uh, talk to them, Be- talk to them very quietly and comfortingly. <laughs> See, that's the real—that's the real villain. Take here. the admissions officer side. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and I'm sure it's been done. Tom Keen, David Gray here in New York with Villain Bowder, chief economist at, at Citigroup. Before we get to the Bank of England, we'll see if that meeting is uh, more worthwhile than the Fed one in your estimation. Let me let me close the loop here on what we were talking about a few moments ago. That being. Um, the trade deal, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and trade generally. Are we seeing a, a reevaluation of what globalization uh, is, a, a new definition of globalization in light of the, the populism we've seen here over the, the campaign cycle in the last year or so? In the U.S. and in Europe, yes. Not in Canada, not Australia, not in New Zealand, not in Latin, where things are moving the other way, not in Southeast Asia, not even in China. So it is... Um, dominant the populist vox populi as we call it um, a movement in those regions of the world rich regions where the fruits from globalization and indeed technical change have been most unequally distributed and until we tackle that both through active labor market policies education training and i think ultimately through guaranteed minimum income if necessary we're not going to solve that problem uh, that's the, the world that we're looking forward to. And since there's no hope, I think, in the U.S. at any rate, of either an active labor market policy or uh, anything approaching a, uh, a guaranteed minimum income, I think that uh, these populist pressures will continue. And there will be a retreat in this part of the advanced economies, not globally, but from globalization. The, the watchword increasingly is inclusion. Uh, you heard it being used at the IMF World Bank meetings. You hear the Treasury Secretary talking about it. Uh, a, 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 an acknowledgement, I suppose, of, of the inequality, the economic inequality. When does it go from that, being a watchword, being something that's talked about, to a change in, in policy, if at all? Well, um, somebody has to make it part of their platform, run on it, and have concrete measures. But what we're talking about here is serious public spending programs, if you're talking about uh, active labor market policies and uh, improved education training, lifelong training and retraining in education, and then, you know, a, a massive uh, tax transfer program to get uh, what Tobin and Friedman called uh, negative income tax, the one thing they actually agreed on, which is really a guaranteed minimum income, independent of work. And um, I don't see any political support for that at the level of... Uh, 
concrete policy being put and any chance of it passing through this Congress in my <clears throat> lifetime. How far apart are guys like you from the idea of getting anything passed in your lifetime? Do academic theorists, whatever their beliefs, the people that agree and disagree with you, Professor, do you feel like there's no one listening in the various capitals of the Western world? I think the parts of the Western world, uh, of course, that don't have this problem. I mentioned uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. But uh, I think uh, some European countries where there is a more um, established tradition of active labor market policies, like Denmark, or uh, of um, you know, quite radical redistribution, if necessary, that have a better chance of tackling this problem. The US, uh, with its historic you know, mistrust of government intervention, is not a place where you would expect, uh, you know, at a federal level, uh, um, active labor market policies or indeed um, any increase in the welfare state, right. which is not targeted exclusively at the old, which the U.S., of course, has got. Well, help us with the populism of your Netherlands. All the news goes to France and to Italy mm -hmm. and the rest. I mean, the Netherlands is polarized now, isn't it? Well, the... Um, uh, Dutch Populist Party, the Freedom Party, as it calls itself, for reasons unknown, um, is uh, um, the largest in the, many of the polls. They tend to underperform, actually, in, uh, in, in elections. And um, uh, there is, actually, some indication that with the modest but real recovery we've had uh, in the last few years in the Netherlands, that their support may have peaked. But, yes, there is strong... Um, anti-immigrant sentiment in the Netherlands, uh, not so much anti-trade, because, I mean, the, in the Netherlands, trade is 100% of GDP, right? Um, uh, so uh, if you're anti-trade, that's like being against your left foot. Uh, but um, uh, there is, um, I think, um, anti-European sentiment, uh, wish to repatriate powers from Brussels, um, um, sort of almost gaullist attitude towards European integration. And uh, xenophobia, that's uh, uh, mm. including Islamophobia. It is very much part of the political landscape now, yes. How do you weigh the, the economic ramifications of the refugee crisis we're, we're seeing right now? We talk a lot about the social effects, of course, but how, how hard is it to forecast out the economic effects of what we're seeing in Europe? Oh, I think from an economic perspective, this has to be a blessing, right? In the short run, we get additional public spending at last on handling the refugee crisis, right? Uh, but we can be dealing with the refugees, processing them, and hopefully educating them. And if they stay integrating into society, that costs money. So there's a Keynesian short-run effect. And, of course, since most of my young, uh, you know, provided they can be educated, trained, <coughs> and uh, socially integrated in society, <coughs> they can uh, you know, no. solve, at least for a couple of generations, the use deficit. So... Uh, the problems are social, political, cultural, religious, and all that. From an economic perspective, you know, let them come. Well, Willem Bouter, thank you so much for Citigroup getting us started on an amazing five and six days of coverage here. From the Fed to the election. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg. flow, it is a good time to catch up with historian, author, all-around Bond guy, 
James Grant, interest rate observer, Grant's interest rate observer. He leads with the arc, <clears throat> excuse me, the arc of the narrative. To me, the arc, uh, Jim, goes out longer and longer. 70-year Austrian paper. What does it mean to Jim Grant to see in our distortion the issuance of near-perpetuity paper? Well, it says that uh, the people have a great deal of confidence in the currency that is undefined and in securities that are payable in currencies that uh, are weightless, undefined, and are manipulatable uh, at the will of a central bank. Now, Tom, I'm going to read you, if I may, I'm going to read you a couple of names apropos of the most exciting 2016 World Series. And I want you, these are, these are, People on the field, and I want you to identify them, if you would, please. This is a pop quiz with no preparation, and nobody has tipped you. All right. Marvin Hudson, Larry Van Over, and Joe West. I would say umpires. Aha. Exactly. Oh, it's are, rigged. This is a, <laughs> that's a rigged They are umpires, <laughs> but notice that only Tom Keene knows that fact, and we are going to be talking all day today, or you will, um, about, the, uh, about Janet Yellen, who is in effect, the, the kind of the umpire yeah. of, uh, of securities. And uh, rather than talking about the nameless people who own them. And, right. And, uh, yeah. So Okay, um, but this is critical. I'm going to go right there, and I love what you're doing here, Jim Grant. Is it a ground rule double and a missed call oh. off of pesky pole? Uh, thank you, Red Sox. <laughs> off the pesky pole that uh, Janet Yellen is calling this a dead meeting. Should she be doing action this November to get out well, in front of December? I think, in general, the central banks ought to do much, much less. They ought to be nearly invisible. They ought to be uh, uh, the stewards of, of uh, monetary units that, that weigh value, and they ought not to be manipulating those units and treating them as instruments of national policy. So I'd all be in favor of invisible central bankers. Unfortunately, they are front and center and, indeed, are celebrities. You know, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, um, many months ago um, uh, buried the lead in a story about the chair of the Federal Reserve. Um, I think it was John Hilsenrath who reported that Janet Yellen, uh, when she has a scheduled domestic or international flight, gets to the airport hours, plural, hours early. Now, all of us are, you know, are, are, we, we must get to the airport earlier these days, but, uh, but Janet Yellen is, is, is one for such, you know, so, so punctilious and, and so uh, set on not uh, on not missing a flight that she arrives hours early. That, that's a personality that is, is risk averse. That is very very she's a very careful woman, and I think that she will be very very averse to anything resembling precipitous action or indeed action. At the risk of torturing the metaphor here, we were talking yesterday about the length of baseball games, how much of an impediment that is to people watching baseball. Let me draw that out to the pre-Fed meeting speeches, inning after inning after inning of speeches from Fed governors and, and Fed officials. Uh, are we hearing too much from them? Is the amount of public dissent a good thing, Jim? Um, no. You, you know, uh, way back in the day, the Bank of England was, was loath to say anything. And uh, well, one of the governors was pressed as to why. And he said, uh, uh, the old lady of, of Threadneedle Street, as the Bank of England is familiarly known, um, ought not to protest her virtue. And so well, my friend Seth Lipsky, who edits the New York Sun, uh, calls today's uh, dollar the verbal dollar because, you know, money talks. Um, uh, but these people uh, cannot shut up. They go on and on, and they speak in this, this kind of uh, 
this this uh, faculty club um, dialect of economics, and uh, it's it's confusing when it isn't uh, uh, vexing. So I, I think that they ought to say much less, do much less, and in generally in general uh, strive for invisibility. I want to switch gears. What you do, folks, with Grant's Interest Rate Observer, maybe more than any other guest, we get requests. Could you please send us Jim Grant's Interest Rate Observer? No, we protect the copyright of all of our guests, particularly Jim Grant, who carves this thing out of marble. <laughs> Jim, you have a brilliant essay on the interesting effect of passive funds. You don't tar and feather Vanguard, but as a dominant passive investor, they have ginormous holdings of companies. You mentioned Ball Corp uh, within your good work, but what is the um, effect of index funds and their popularity upon corporate activism and shareholder representation? Mm. Well, um, we've gone from uh, activism, it seems, to uh, passivity, or to, uh, I guess, in the case of the uh, the very, very hot index and ETF products, into kind of a, a passive aggressiveness. Uh, but um, I, th- I think that, tr- that, that there's nothing wrong with the idea of indexation. In fact, there's many, many things are right with it. I think that, like any other idea on Wall Street, um, it tends to be, any other good idea on Wall Street tends to be driven into the ground like a tomato steak. And uh, there's a, uh, a Wall Street epigram worth repeating that uh, it's not the bad ideas that get you in trouble. It's the good ideas that are taken to such extremes that they become bad ideas. And um, I, I think indexation and certainly the indexed exchange-traded funds are, are, are approaching that point. I'm not sure if we're there yet, but I think that, uh, um, that uh, the, the, the trend towards passive investing has tended to uh, uh, to uh, uh, to devalue uh, the fine art of securities analysis. It, it has tended to um, uh, make us collectively uh, less careful investors. Jim, I, I anticipate here that on November 9th, or, or at least on January the 20th, the conversation is going to shift to infrastructure spending. Whether or not that happens uh, is debatable, but uh, in your most recent newsletter, you write about government spending. A quote stood out to me. He said, government can create demand. It cannot create supply. One source of inflation is a preponderance of the former in relation to the latter. And this was in the context of defense spending in particular. We're about to talk to Maya McGinnis from the uh, the, 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 the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. So tee up that conversation for us here, that conversation about the, the role of government and the relationship here to, to inflation. Well, the, you know, the, the government uh, can indeed uh, create money. It does uh, effortlessly. Uh, and it can create uh, demand, especially um, uh, uh, with, with, with ease in the matter of defense spending. Um, with regard to infrastructure, you have to get permits and you have to get those famous shovels, which seem not to be so ready. Uh, with regard to defense spending, you call up uh, uh, Northrop or General Dynamics or somebody and you, you place your order. So I, I think that um, uh, if the I mean let, let's say that uh, Mrs. Clinton wins and uh, and she is famous for not only her public views but also for her private ones. Say she moves to the center. Say she reaches accord with the, her um, uh, confreres across the aisle and they agree they will compromise. She will get massive uh, infrastructure spending and free college tuition and uh, for all we know um, free dental care and. Uh, just so the Republicans don't feel left out, they will get uh, their arsenal of democracy. And it's possible that the bond market is not anticipating the full onslaught 
of this uh, new adventure in, in yeah. fiscal policy. Jim, to your critics, I've got to ask this question. You've called for higher interest rates for years. When do we see it? Um, 2014, Tom. I keep on talking. I, I like that. <laughs> That's good. That you become a perma guest, a perma guest in surveillance. It's, it's called a backcast. Oh, we backcast with Jim Grant. Yeah, Jim, yeah. wonderful to see you. May your bow tie Thank be bright today. Jim Grant, uh, the Grant's interest rate observer, always brilliant. I love his tone. The arc of the narrative, which yes. perfectly captures some of the bizarreness that we are living right now. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. David Gurren, Tom Keen. David, uh, yesterday we perused the collapse of another hope in the media business. I say hope, folks, with guarded use because as a rule, if I see the word hope, H-O-P-E, and anything to do with investment, I circle the word and hold on to my wallet, David Gurra. <laughs> that was ugly yesterday, wasn't it? It with was. Trunk. Gannett abandoning its bid, a $680 million takeover bid for Tronk, what was once called the Tribune a Publishing Company. Uh, here to talk more about that is one of the, the sharpest minds when it comes to the future uh, of media. That is Ken Doctor. He is a media consultant. He writes the Newsonomics column at the Neiman Journalism Lab. He spent 21 years at Knight Ritter, Tom. Yeah, he did. And, and Ken Doctor, folks, his, I read every word of his book, Newsonomics. It was age, It was years, light years, Ken Doctor, ahead of anybody else. If you wrote Newsonomics, the sequel today, what would be the first chapter? Uh, the first chapter is the changing. I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> Thanks for your encouragement. I appreciate it. Uh, the, the first chapter is probably going to be rooted in the changing cities and changing population. So thinking about not the news problems and the news industry problems of today, but the kind of people we are becoming and, and how technology is changing, how we can serve up information. And, and thereby how it's going to get paid for. So trying to be future-reaching, uh, I, appreciate, I appreciate your kind words. I've written um, tens of thousands of words in these columns, and I'm trying to step back from that and yeah. point to what uh, sprouts that are working at this point. Ken, this deal falls apart yesterday. You wrote a column on the heels of that. You said, for the money yeah. guys all around this deal, it's a phenomenon they've seen before. It is just a broken deal. The money guys don't reach for the Kleenex. They open... Uh, Excel. What happens here to Gannett? What happens to the company rechristened as Tronk back in June? I think Tronk is a, still a short-term case. It's been a it's been a point of, uh, of ridicule this year, but it's still uh, we got to recall uh, the, uh, the home of major newspapers, and it is still very unstable. They reported their uh, third quarter earnings yesterday. And uh, basically not much different than Gannett, uh, down uh, 10, 11 percent in uh, advertising, huge amount this year, yeah. and 7 percent in overall revenues. And 
The mighty Tribune company, you must want to call it Tronc here, only made net gain of $8 million for the quarter. Uh, plus, the big deal with Tronc, I think, is the coming lawsuits from their major investors, not frivolous ones, but major ones, saying that Michael Farrow's original deal was tainted. Yeah. Uh, this has this is going to greatly complicate their lives, and then also I right. think the shareholders wanting to cash out. So I think that that's the immediate future of Trump. Okay, I want to talk about the the, the the down the road, Ken, which you're so good at, folks. If you're just joining us, Ken Doctor, he writes in Politico, and of course writes his Newsonomics blog, which is must read within all the media. My great th- theme, Ken Doctor is the idea that it's not about ad revenue dynamics, income statement dynamics, et cetera, et cetera. It's about a massive change, my observation, in how we consume media. Where are we going to be in 24 months? If Mr. Sulzberg is listening this morning or uh, Mr. Bloomberg or anybody else, where are we going to be in 24 months in the consumption of the product? Well, the, the consumption of the product, uh, we talked about 2016 being the year of the platform. And I think that is both true and overhyped. So everybody said, well, is Facebook just going to overcome everybody? And it's everybody's going to read everything, including the news on Facebook. And in truth, I'm going to be writing about this in the next couple of weeks, Facebook certainly pushes a lot of traffic to newspapers uh, and newspaper sites. But the main readers of Mr. Salzberger's paper are those who go to its digital site, especially now with the anxiety of the election, several times a day or an hour. And these are people called subscribers. Um, As Mark Thompson has said, 85% of all the digital revenue that comes into the Times comes from 12% of the digital audience. So even 24 months from now, even with Facebook and Snapchat and and whatever is going to be out there in 2018, it is that reader connection of us paying for the information and news that we value and trust that is that is pushing the companies over over toward the finish line. That's where the Times is at. The Journal, even with its problems, is, is, is uh, in, a, in a decent position there. Financial Times, Boston Globe is getting there. It is that reader connection. And so I think we shouldn't let technology, all the moves of platforms, obscure the fact that only thing is going to save good print-based media is reader payment and reader subscription. Ken, how important is local right now? I remember not too long ago, that's where the conversation was. There was that sharp divide within the Washington Post newsroom, for example, between uh, the Grand sure. family who said, this is a local audience, we've got to keep this paper local. There is Steve Call agitating for it to become an international paper of record, not unlike the, the New York Times. You looked at the advent of, of Patch, that's since sort of fallen to, to the wayside some. Um, what does the Gannett deal say about what local means right now in 2016? Local is, and uh, remember, I'm an optimist, local is wasting away. It's wasting away before our eyes. So even as Gannett was trying to finalize this trunk deal, uh, a, a week ago, they cut 2% of its workforce, 380 people. And so you had in Salem, Oregon, not, not a small city, the top editor and the opinion page editor both laid off. In St. Cloud, Minnesota, middle-sized city, down to 20 people in the newsroom from 32 two years ago examples all over the country. We literally have about half the number of journalists in daily newsrooms, local daily right. newsrooms that we had in 1990. Do you predict so ca- is, go ahead. Do you predict more like the independent where print goes away and it's just all digital? 
No, because on a local basis, if you do that, you take a newsroom of 80 and you reduce it to maybe 15. That's all you can pay for because so little of the revenue is digital at this point. So it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It works on a national basis to some degree for the independent in the U.K. It right. will not work on a local basis. We're going to continue with Ken Doctor. That's what we want to talk about more, the national view uh, with him. I can't say enough about newsonomics. I'll be blunt. It's a little bit dated now. We all beg for Ken Doctor <laughs> to do the sequel. Get he'll do that. He'll yeah. do that in his free time. But it was a great book at the time, really a pathbreaking book on all the stuff we have on our hands every day and what our kids are doing and that, how we consume. I'm, I'm, I'm nuts, David Gura. My theme for next year within all we do here at Bloomberg is think like the audience, think like the listener on Bloomberg Radio, think like the viewer. How do we consume? What a pleasure to have Ken Doctor with us. Uh, he is truly one of the nation's experts on the oddities of our media, print media, and certainly this migration. We're all living in real time to digital. We continue our discussion now with Ken Doctor, writing in Politico, and of course his classic book, Newsonomics. Ken Doctor, is Twitter the new newspaper? No, it's just the route. Uh, we sh I think we should not get confused between the, the roads uh, and the destination. It's a great road, and especially those of us that are in and around media use it, but it's just a road. Um, Twitter, Yahoo, um, Google, Facebook, they don't create the news. The same companies create the news, and we've never seen that being more important than 2016. How do they cut costs within the, the, the manufacturers of the product that's distributed through Twitter? What's the next iteration of cost-cutting? In, in the Twitters or in the newspaper? No, the newspaper business, the media business in oh, general. No, I so it's exactly what uh, Gannett's strategy is. And, and, and you said, you asked at the top, you know, what, what's, Gannett's, uh, what's Gannett's next plan? Gannett's plan is singular. It is cost consolidation. And it is based on um, having papers. For instance, if they had gotten the Chicago Tribune, it's not far from the Milwaukee paper. You combine printing. Uh, you print a little earlier. Um, you have one. You have one printing plant. Fewer distribution plants. Um, you share copy editing. You share ad sales. That kind of stuff. It is a basic cost consolidation strategy, which of course we see in all receding industries. Unfortunately, they cannot cut costs at this point, which they've been cutting for a decade, fast enough to equalize the loss in print advertising. So for Gannett, uh, you got the cost consolidation angle, but but Bob Dickey, the CEO, has brought another problem onto himself because his his uh, share price has uh, dipped by uh, by half uh, as as investors have lost confidence first in the trunk deal overpaying, but now in the basic strategy. And there's questions of whether the consolidation strategy that he has that he has advocated is going to work. Ken, very quickly here before we got to let you go. Uh, the New York Times now has an error apparent when it comes to, to its publisher. Arthur Seltzberger has, has yeah. named A.G. Seltzberger the deputy publisher. It looks like he'll be heading the paper soon. He's, of course, the, one, the architect behind the digital strategy paper that uh, was much ballyhooed, leaked out uh, a little over a, a year ago. What does the New York Times look like here in, in, in 24 months? Let me take Tom's conceit. What does that paper look like? I saw yesterday uh, the paper here announcing it's going to do 360-degree virtual reality video day after day after day. They're trying a bunch of stuff here. What does that say about the paper's right. strategy, and what are we going to see in, in about two years' time? Well, what it says about the strategy is uh, they, they are still treading water. 
They are still treading water. They need to find another revenue source to build on that basic successful digital subscription strategy. So they've got the little crosswords product that has 200,000. And you saw a recommendations product called Watching that just launched last week. What they are looking for in all of these things, VR and others, is some new way to add on to our bills as subscribers another $2.99 a month or $4.99 a month. If they can do that and they can get a couple hundred thousand here and a couple hundred thousand there, then that gives them that ability maybe to get even with the economy, uh-huh. which they haven't been even with for, for uh, eight years now. Wonderful to have you with us today. Ken Doctor, a Newsonomics, his classic book, and of course his blog as well, and, and writing for Politico as he did yesterday on Gannett. Uh, trunk. It has been far too long. Anne-Marie Slaughter is a name you know, even if you don't know her. Her article four, I can't believe Anne-Marie, it's four years ago. Why women yeah. still why women still can't have it all in the Atlantic arguably changed the dialogue on culture in this nation. Emery Slaughter is with New America, their president, their chief executive uh, officer. Emery, let me just send you an open question here before David Gurl wades in. Are you enjoying this election cycle? <laughs> <laughs> no. Could anybody be enjoying this election cycle? We, I think everybody uh, wants it to come to whatever is their preferred end. You've written a piece here for Foreign Affairs looking at at sort of a new, suggesting uh, a a new way of looking at at the world. You draw a distinction between a chessboard view and a web view. Let's dig into that a little bit. Start with the chessboard view. What has that view looked like for for a long time, and and what necessitates a change? So the chessboard view is is traditional strategic geopolitics. Think Henry Kissinger, uh, think uh, 19th century, great game, great power politics, and it's it's still highly relevant in this world. We've got China or Russia or Iran or other powers where basically global politics is you make a move, you figure out what move your adversary is going to make, sometimes uh, a cooperator. Uh, you anticipate that, uh, and it, it's, a, it's a game. It's a, you can call it chess. You can call it poker. Uh, it's a very high-stakes game, but it is the traditional way that foreign policy people have looked at the world. And the, and the web view, how, how is that different? So the web view is, is alongside the, foreign, uh, the, the chessboard view, and it is increasingly important now. And it is the world of the Internet, the world of networks, the world we're in, although we're in both at the same time. So if you think about the most obvious example are terrorist networks or uh, any global criminal networks, whether it's drug running or arms trafficking or trafficking in people, those are all criminal networks. But then think about the global commercial networks, global supply chains, global corporations, global civic movements. So you have everything yeah. from, you know, Amnesty International. You have lots and lots and lots of networks. Okay, we've got networks, but to the point of the foreign affairs issue and folks on populism, I can't say enough about it. This is this excludes so many people who cannot take advantage of networks. Is that part of the tension right now? So many people feel on the outside. So I I think that is right in many ways. Uh, although that that's right in the sense of a lot of this looks like elite networks, right? So 
networks of corporations, sure, networks of universities, yes. But there are also religious networks, uh, you know, church networks uh, that are, can be very important. Uh, there are charity networks. There are ways, actually, that, that any number of people can, are part uh, of global networks. But I, I do agree with you uh, that part of the problem of globalization is that it has left so many people behind who feel like they're not globally connected, and they're certainly, certainly not globally advantaged. How do you? How does the, the leader of, of a country deal with uh, a circumstance in which you've got both things going on at once? You've you've got the chessboard view and the web view at once. And here I'm I'm thinking of of Russia in particular. It seems like there is a bit of that old school gamesmanship uh, laid over perhaps uh, uh, th- this web view of the world. Yes. And this is the the argument in the article is you've got to learn to see in stereo. You've got to be able to see both and act on both uh, at the same time. So on the one hand, Russia's a great power. Putin is clearly challenging us, uh, us meaning the West, in Ukraine, in Syria, you know, even even with his relations with China. And in my view, we have to stand very firm. Uh, different people have have different understandings. I think uh, that he will he will take as much as he can get, and if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. So I think there, pretty much traditional Cold War politics, where you have to stand firm, you have to be willing at times. Uh, to at least threaten force. Uh, If you think about the Cuban Missile Crisis, nobody wanted to go there. But if you hadn't stood up, I don't know what would have happened in terms of of then the Soviet Union and the world. But at the same time, you need to think about the Russian people. You need to think about the dissidents. Putin is very worried about domestic dissent. And there's a great deal we can do uh, to create networks uh, among Mm -hmm. uh, digital activists in Russia and Europe and the United States. Uh, again, there are lots of young Russian business people who really don't want to support uh, Putin and who you still need to build networks uh, in, in among yeah. colleges. Uh, and so there are ways of engaging the people at the same time you engage no. the government. David Gura here with Tom Keen on Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio with Anne-Marie Slaughter, CEO of New America, author of Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, Family. Uh, Anne-Marie, Tom kicked things off by asking you about this election and how eager you are for it to be over with. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the degree to which WikiLeaks has played a role in all of this. You were a victim, and I will use that word by choice here. Some of your emails posted by that, that site online from when you were a director of policy planning at, at the State Department. Let me take a step back and ask you to reflect on what all of this means for those who are working in government today. I imagine there is a a feeling of nakedness that probably comes with seeing emails appearing online and and being widely consumed. How are colleagues of yours in government reacting to this? What's the message it sends for for those who are in public service in the future? Well, I've been out of government now for a number of years, but it it essentially means you won't put things in email, and that means a lot of work won't get done. It's not possible to talk to people on the phone uh, you know, with the same regularity you can email. And, uh, you know, particularly in a place like the State Department, people travel constantly. Uh, so without email, a lot of important work won't get done. Or, of course, we will move to much more heavily encrypted systems. I'll put a question to you I put to Steve Ratner a couple of days ago. We were talking to him about his tenure when he was the, the car czar in the Obama administration. 
and and he expressed some frustration at the lack of technological advancement in government. There there is a deficit there, and that leads people perhaps to to use uh, non-government email uh, for for government communication. Is that still a deficit in government? Was that something that you encountered as well? Yes. But technology in the State Department was fairly dismal uh, in terms of the just how hard it was to be able to get onto the State Department server when you were out of the office. And the, uh, it's, it's really they don't have the budget. Right. And the, the, the NSA, the Defense Department have very good technology, but the other parts yeah. of the government don't. And it hurts us. Can I just, in defense of Anne-Marie Slaughter, David Gurr, say that 92% of her emails in WikiLeaks were pizza orders from Campono? <laughs> <laughs> just so everybody everybody understands what we're talking about. Well, and, there were a fair number to my housekeeper. I gotta I gotta say yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> orthodontist appointment. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, boy, do I know that tune. Um, I want to go back to how you changed the world, Anne-Marie. Why women still can't have it all. Why men, why women still can't have it all. We are marching on in an overworked, time-compressed age. Can there be government policy that provides a sanity for the way all and with all agreement, uh, everybody would suggest women have to work in this day and age? Uh, yeah. I mean, the main thing, the first thing government can do is to mandate paid family leave. Uh, and if you note... Uh, paid family leave has been on the agenda from Secretary Clinton, from Donald Trump, from Marco Rubio, from Bernie Sanders. So I actually think uh, we're going to join the rest of the civilized world and pass laws that mean if you're sick, you don't have to choose or your child is sick. You don't have to choose between your child and your job. Uh, but there's a lot more we need to do. Uh, and it's not just for women. It's for all of us. It really is for anybody who's a caregiver, whether you're a father or a mother or you're taking care of your own mother or, and father. Uh, you know, everybody right. needs to work economically and work has to make room for care. I mean, I, I look at the battle over the last 24 months over overtime pay for workers and, you know, the battle over the minimum wage. And everybody listening has a different opinion on this. Is there a common ground in Washington to admit that digital exists? <laughs> I don't see well, it. I mean, I think half the people there are running around with quill, you know, dipping it in the ink bucket. <laughs> well, I, you know, again, I do think I think there there's a big divide uh, between our legislators and much of the rest of the country there. But on the other hand, the millennials are now the largest single group in our country. And as one head of HR said to me, millennials want to work anytime, anywhere, anyhow. And so you've got not just parents or caregivers saying, hey, wait a minute, I've got to be able to work from home. I've got to be able to work from the road. You've got millennials saying, you know, what, what century are you in? <laughs> my work is tied to my computer. And this is, this is also true for jobs you mm -hmm. might not expect. Uh, in terms of, of jobs where you think they have to be tied to, say, a, you know, like a, a cashier or uh, somebody who's been working in a service job, those jobs yeah. you can use d uh, digital see, scheduling and make them much you, more flexible. Emory, you don't see this, but Gurr is over there trying to figure out how to steal your nanny. <laughs> <laughs> I have a good one, but I, I must say that the conversation is is, is a continuous one uh, at living all of this this myself. And, and I know that you're supporting uh, Secretary Clinton in her candidacy, but I wonder, you must have been cheered to, to hear Donald Trump talking about some of these issues, having his daughter on the campaign talking about them as well. It's kind of superseding partisanship a bit, it seems like. 
Yes, and not, you know, I should just add, New America is nonpartisan. So, uh, as officially, I'm not supporting anybody. But no, I look the, the speech that Ivanka Trump gave Trump Trump gave in uh, in Cleveland is one that I probably could have given. And indeed, we had an event at New America with representatives of the Clinton campaign and the Trump campaign both saying work has to make room for care. Now, obviously, they have different policies, but it's an issue for all of us. Dr. Slaughter, thank you so much. Anne Marie Slaughter, New America, uh, and I really can't say enough about her contribution to the new Foreign Affairs magazine. Whatever your political inclination, it is thought-provoking on populism. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.